And we'll especially uh, focus our thoughts around verse 6. That whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now we looked last time at the beginning of chapter 18, we've moved into a new section of Matthew's Gospel as we consider this last year of Christ's life. And you'll remember that it all centered around an argument that had arisen among the disciples after Peter had been named the rock and the stone and after they had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. you remember three of them went with him, nine of them stayed at the bottom and nine of them failed to cast out the demon from the boy who eventually Christ cast it out. As we said last time, this piqued the disciples' interest about which of them would have prominence among the twelve. Peter's interested in it, having been given the name. He rebukes Christ at one point, which shows what he thinks regarding himself and his position among the disciples. He actually rebukes the Lord. And we notice also that James and John's mother soon will come to Christ and ask for positions for their sons. We know that Judas is among them also, and that he's very interested in the glory of Israel and position. Uh, He was willing to sell the Lord when that dream came to an end, and he realized that the Lord was not going to give the disciples the kind of glory that Judas had first ambitions for. So you can see that this is going on among them, and Jesus asks them why they were arguing in Mark's Gospel, and we saw what caused the argument and what it was like and what it was about, and we saw that the root of it was pride, which is an unhealthy and unrealistic desire for our own exaltation that comes and arises in our hearts because we don't know God as he is. For any creature that knows fully who God is and is interactive with God, Um, and who knows God's attributes, his greatness and glory and holiness and purity, whenever God reveals himself to someone in Scripture, always lowers them. They can never be proud in his full presence. And there's so many examples of that, especially in the Old Testament. When God shows his glory, the people almost die. They, They fall down before him. So when pride is in Peter, James and John, or in you or I, that is because we're not seeing God at that moment as he is, or we may never have seen God truly as he is. That pride cannot exist where God is. Where God is, we saw humility exists. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest. Uh, Knowing God pushes us down and it lowers us. And that humility is a sense of our own baseness and meanness. As creatures of the dust before God, that's all we are. Although we're in his image, but we are creatures of the dust. And it lowers us, and we have self-understanding. And that's where true peace lies, too. As John Calvin said, all true knowledge exists in this, to know yourself and to know God. If we know that we are low, and we know that God is great, we will have peace, functioning as we were created to function. But when we start to grasp for these positions, and argue for these positions, as these men have fallen into, it just causes trouble. Now what happens here is the Lord has taken a child to illustrate this. The child's teachability, the child's smallness, the child's innocence, understood in a certain way, the child's simplicity and 
the child's willingness to follow and to imitate, he says this is a great example of what a Christian disciple ought to be. Childlike, in these ways, though growing up into maturity and knowledge, childlike in these kind of ways. Willing, receptive, following, uh, loving the rest of the family, and so on. Uh, the Lord uses this example as he begins throughout chapter 18 to speak about the Christian family. Uh, the Christian family in the sense that he's building a church and when he leaves, after his ascension, this family will have to go on, this kingdom will have to be established and it has to be governed and it has to operate in a certain way. And Jesus is very concerned to leave teaching, not just with the disciples, but in scripture for us, to show us the kind of things that come up um, in the kingdom, in our interpersonal relationships. That's what this chapter ends up being all about. It begins with a lesson in humility and a child. But from that point on, it's really about offenses and stumbling blocks um, and sin between brothers and sisters and how we ought to deal with that sin, how the church ought to deal with that sin. And the chapter closes with a lesson for us in how we ought to forgive one another when there is confession and repentance between each other, how that forgiveness must imitate God's forgiveness for us. So chapter 18 is about this family that he is establishing, this kingdom. And what the passage really hinges around is this word offense, or as it's translated here, stumbling block. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him, and so on. And then in the following verses, verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. You'll see how repetitive the Lord is there. Uh, he could have just said it once, but even in that one verse, verse 7, he repeats it three times. Usually the Lord may repeat something twice. Here he repeats it three times, so overemphasizing this word that is sometimes translated offense. Here it's translated stumbling block. And he's saying that we have to be on the watch for these things. He's describing the way it is it, in the kingdom then, but now too. This is the way it always will be. When you gather a group of people together, um, even in grace and in salvation, and to build the kingdom of God, it's full of people in a fallen world, with fallen hearts, and sinful dispositions, and these things will happen in between. It's happening between these twelve apostles, and the Lord is saying it will not only happen among them, it will always happen. So we need to know what they are, and how to deal with them, and to be on our guard from them. And although it says here a stumbling block, and it's sometimes translated an offense, which is a good word for it, we offend each other. The world is obsessed with offense, as you know, especially in this new generation, the postmodern generation, obsessed with offense. That, that is the chief sin. That is the, the unpardonable sin. That is the sin against the Holy Spirit. To, to do anything that may offend another individual is unforgivable. That this is the thing that must be focused on and spoken about. That I feel offended. 
and therefore I judge that you are wrong because you have offended me. You know how obsessed the world is with this. And the Lord mentions it here, and the word will help us understand what it actually is. We're concerned about not doing this to each other. The word is from the world of hunting, and it's the word for a trap or a snare that you set to catch an animal. Woe, woe to the world because of offenses. Do not cause one of these little ones in me to stumble or to step into a trap. So the word, and you know the word, it's the word scandalon or scandal. That's the word Jesus uses. And it's passed into the English, we still use it. The president is involved in a scandal. This, this celebrity is, is caught up in this scandal. And maybe even in the church, someone gets caught up in a scandal. And what we mean by that is that there's something controversial happening around this person. It's very scandalous. But where the word came from is the fact that someone's been caught in a trap. And therefore we say this is a scandal. This hunting word is to do with setting a trap. A little hook on a trap that you set so that the animal doesn't know it's there. When the animal steps on the trap, this mechanism moves and the animal is ensnared. That is, in the Greek, a scandalon, or a scandal. And the Lord says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to be caught in a snare, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied to his neck and to be thrown into the sea. You'll see what a kind of preacher our Lord was. Very emphatic, very clear, very vivid, shocking, arresting our attention on a Sunday morning. The, the snare and the millstone round the neck and being cast into the sea. This is obviously serious. Now he says here that um, he points to a child, and we're going to see that in one of our points, that he does, he, he says, watch that you don't ensnare children, which is very important. But I think we, we take the whole passage as um, speaking about believers in general, because he says in verse 3, that unless you are converted and become like children. So the child is just an illustration. He's speaking to us that we must be born again, be converted, and enter the kingdom. And he views us as the children of God. So we mustn't make children sin. But in God's sight, all of us are in that official sense, children. We're the children of God. We're a family. And he's telling these disciples, you're arguing among yourselves. And Peter and James and John, you're arguing among yourselves and whoever else was involved in it. And you're, you're setting snares for each other. You're, uh, Peter, when you set a snare for James, you are setting a snare for one of my children. I am their father. You set a snare for them and it can cause them to sin. And James and John's sin may be one thing, but you laid the trap for that sin. And therefore, you are guilty yourself and you are responsible. So the great exhortation to us is, whatever these snares are, to make sure we never are the cause of them or that we set them for others. So what are these kinds of uh, snares that we can uh, set for each other in the church that Jesus so clearly <coughs> warns us about? Well, I think the New Testament is clear that there are several ways that we can think about this 
setting of a trap or a snare that makes others who should be able to walk clearly on the path of righteousness, it makes them trip up and stumble. And let's just see a couple of them. <coughs> the first, and we're doing this thematically, really, the first is doctrine. And Jesus speaks about that throughout the Gospels. He says in one of the Gospels, my doctrine is not my own, but him who sent me. And all he teaches here in these four Gospels is doctrine. Doctrine about God and doctrine about us and how we ought to live. And the New Testament gives us an insight, practical insights into the kind of thing the Lord uh, means here. And I'm going to give you a few passages, and please turn with me quickly to each of them, and we'll just read them. Uh, let's read, first of all, from First John. That's towards the end of the Bible. First John, chapter 3. And verse 24, 1 John 3, 24, on page 1220. <clears throat> the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every Spirit, but test the spirits, to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you see there the importance of doctrine, we could go through First John. It's all about the truth of God and the falsehood of false teachers that say the wrong things about God and Christ and salvation, that we are warned not to believe every doctrine we hear, because it will cause a snare to us. It said in verse 3 of chapter 4 that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. That false doctrine in 1 John is destroying the churches in Ephesus. And we have to be on our guard because these are snares that are set. Look at 2 John. That's over the page on page 1222. 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does, who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God, and so on. So there you have it again, verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Uh, look now at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. This is on page 1186. It's actually over the page, 1187. 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, 
so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander were obviously, they weren't taking the Lord's name in vain, that kind of blasphemy. The problem is they have opposed Paul and they're teaching a different doctrine than they've received. And that, Paul says, is blasphemy. They've changed the gospel and changed the truth of Christ. And Paul warns Timothy, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they have been handed over to Satan because they were laying snares for other people. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, page 1191. 2 Timothy 2, verse 17. And their talk, or their teaching, will spread like cancer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. I think that's quite a weak translation, saying that they were upset. It's that they've destroyed the faith of some. They've pulled people away from the faith, through false teaching. I'm going to read one more. You don't need to turn to this. Because we've looked at a lot of verses there. But this is Acts chapter 20. And it's the famous passage about elders and ministers teaching in the church. And this is what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not saving the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, seeking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. But you see that, that men will rise up even in the church and it will draw disciples away. Now, our Lord is very concerned about this. Remember that um, all of these things I've read are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He authored Scripture and by His Spirit, and all the Bible is His teaching. And when He ascends, after He's taught Matthew 18, when He ascends and pours out the Spirit on His apostles and guides them to teach the young church, it is very notable how much in the New Testament epistles we are warned and warned and warned against false doctrine, false teaching, that not only gives us wrong ideas, but that can destroy faith. It can take those who are on the outside of the kingdom or near the kingdom, and it can mislead them. Those who have made a profession of Christ, it can mislead them onto a sinful thought pattern or a sinful uh, course of action so that, as Paul says to Timothy, they make shipwreck of their faith. The faith they thought they had, the faith that they were moving towards or that God was drawing them towards. They hear a false doctrine, they accept it, and then they begin to build their whole understanding of the Christian life on that original false doctrine, and they end up making shipwreck. Doctrine is very important. And when our Lord says, don't cause one another as little children to fall into a trap or a snare, we have to be careful that we're on a firm foundation of doctrine. That none of these doctrines are trivial. 
that we're not in a marketplace of ideas in the church. That the doctrine that has been established about things like the Trinity, uh, the cross, the atonement, God's character, uh, the nature of the church, the nature of man and woman, these are all established doctrines. And there's a wrong view today that, that says it's good to discuss these things and to sit with each other and question them all. What if there isn't a trinity? What if God didn't pour out his wrath on Christ at the cross? Maybe we're saved some other way. What if the church isn't Presbyterian? What if it's not meant to be governed that way? Perhaps women should be ministers and elders. It's worth discussing. Why not? It's not dangerous. Christ says it is dangerous. Because although you may be really established in your understanding of these things, you may have read a lot about them, and you, you have a very firm view of these things, and you discuss them, someone may be there, and people are always in the church who do not understand all of these things. And if you, in the name of legitimate questioning, are constantly questioning what God has said for the sake of discussion, people will hear that, and it will take root in them. You have laid a snare for someone else. These snares are always laid, and people have been led astray by them. There are men who say that the wrath of God poured out at the cross upon Christ that is the means of our salvation, that saves you and I from that wrath. There are men who say that God cannot be like that. They don't take it from Scripture. They say, my God cannot be like that. He is too loving. He is too gracious. He didn't pour out his wrath. Therefore, it cannot be true. There must be another explanation. And ministers teach this, and they lead entire congregations away from the true God to believe a lie and a God that does not exist. For God did pour out his wrath uh, upon Christ. And so it goes on and on. You can fill in the blanks, my friends. The nature of man and woman. This has gone on in our own church, which we love, our denomination, which we love, that there are people who are convinced that our church is backward and outdated and tyrannical and ruled only by men, and that the only way our church can truly reflect the nature of God is to stop being domineering and masculine and to embrace all of our wives and sisters into the eldership and to go to the seminary and to train as ministers. This is truly argued by some people, and um, they have laid a snare for many people who see these discussions, who read about them and hear about them, and who read about them on Facebook, and it's done in the name of honest inquiry. Why can we not ask these questions? We don't mean any harm by these questions. It's just a discussion. Why are you so afraid to discuss it? Well, I'll tell you why we're afraid to discuss it. Because Christ says that if we, in a reckless way, lay snares for young believers and lead them astray, then it would be better if Christ put a stone on our head and threw us into the sea. Christ never says, what's the big deal? Because it is a big deal to lay snares for others by questioning established, good, beautiful, and accepted doctrine that can be easily proven in God's word. So the Lord, when he teaches his own doctrine, it's certainly implied here, at least logically, that when he tells us not to make young believers stumble, we must make sure that we are not doing that by giving them false doctrine.
Can you see yourself in any of that? It's, I've given you some examples there from the outside. It's easy to point the finger and say how terrible. But do, do I do this and do you do this? Uh, does someone ever come to you and say, this is a teaching in the Bible and this is a doctrine that's in the Bible? Uh, th- and you say, well, that's trivial. Or you say, well, that, that doesn't matter. Are you sure? It doesn't matter. Have you studied the thing? Have you looked at the thing? Have you seen it in the light of the rest of Scripture? Are you saying that after you've fully considered whatever the issue may be? Uh, it's not right to be blasé and to talk about parts of the Bible or words that are spoken by God and say, well, that, that's a trivial thing. I'm all about love and discipleship and worship. Well, God has more. God tells us a lot about our lives, and none of it's trivial. Uh, our money, uh, the way we worship, uh, our marriages, our friendships, um, all of these things. Do you agree that these things all matter? They all matter. So let's be sure that we're in the spirit of God. If we start saying things like, well, that, that doesn't matter at all, um, we're being very dismissive and we're being very blasé about something that's given by God. And we have to be very careful about that. And if we um, meet other Christians or we're interacting with other congregations or we're interacting with each other and we're speaking about doctrine, if we see from Scripture that something we believe is wrong, and that happens, um, Christ's advice to us is clear. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, and doctrine's part of that, to believe something wrong about God is actually sinful. If we discover that something we believe is wrong, he tells us what to do. Just cut it out and get rid of it. Don't nurse it for another ten years trying to prove that it's still true. If we come to an understanding that something we believe is actually wrong and it's not what God says, there's something in us that may want to hold on to that or whatever it may be, but the advice is clear and I'm not going to go into the passage about the cutting off and everything because we'll come to that, but... Are you willing to do that? Just to discover, I compare this with this. The scripture says I'm actually wrong about this. Okay, I'm just going to cut it off. Get, get rid of it. It's better to enter into life maimed than to, to hold up, to keep that hand and, and for there to be consequences of it. Um, that happens to us all. I've had to do that. I remember the first time I visited the United States in 2002 and I was at a Christian camp and I attended a PCA church and I, I thought, this is wonderful. This church is huge. It had 2,000 people in it and they were waving flags and the music was excellent and the message was okay and everyone seemed to be smiling and dressed really well and they all seemed to really love each other. And I was amazed that they had staff in church. They had a full contingent of staff in the church. I'd never seen this before. Secretaries and Sunday school teachers and parking attendants. And I thought, this is so much better than my church. And I remember when I came back to Scotland and I was saying to people, you know, the, the orchestra in this church and the sound of people praising and all of these things, it was wonderful. And people had to say to me, well, is it biblical? Though I grew up in a psalm singing church that holds to the regular principle, I was just so impressed at that young age by the operation of this big uh, 
group of people worshipping God, and I thought, I was just impressed by it. Now you see what my problem was. I didn't have the doctrine down yet. I didn't have it figured out. I believed that, that what I'd grown up doing was right. But when I saw this other thing, it attracted me. And I didn't have anything that made me question it or to work out whether it was right or wrong. I just thought, this feels good to me, very unspiritual, young 19-year-old. This feels good to me. So I'm giving you an example from myself so that I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else, but are you, when you discover through study and through openness to God, when you discover what the Bible actually says about something, are you willing to, to just cut it, cut it out? I, I had to cut that out. I just cut it out, and now I'm, I'm in a church that holds to the regular principle, and I understand why, and I would defend it and defend it and defend it, because now I understand what the Bible says about these things. So let's make sure that our attitude to doctrine is the proper one. And that we're not just going by our feelings and all of these things and that we end up, we think this is okay and we just end up laying a trap for someone else and it might make them leave a church and begin to believe the wrong things. So that's doctrine. The second thing is um, in obedience. Obedience to the commands of God. When the Lord tells us here that you have to watch that you don't cause one of these who believe in me to stumble, that's about sin. There's the doctrinal side of it, the foundation side of it, but it's also about our behavior and about our attitude to the commands of God. And that's getting closer to the whole context here. Um, when he's leaving these uh, commandments to the disciples, he's very concerned about how they treat one another and whether they sin against one another. And later in the chapter, he'll tell us how to deal with that sin. But if we're going to be concerned, if I'm going to be truly spiritual and be very concerned about not sinning against you, and you're going to be concerned about not sinning against another Christian, then we need to know the commandments of God. That's how we'll not sin against other people, if we know these commandments. Um, that is why we read in, in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 18 and 19, the first uh, passage that we read in our readings Listen to what Jesus says about the way we affect other people in the church. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then disobeys one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now you'll see um, that these two passages are linked. This whole dispute began because the disciples asked, what was the question? Who is the greatest among us? Verse 1 of our chapter. Who is the greatest? That's why this argument began. That's why our Lord is teaching the way he is. In the Sermon on the Mount that we just read, Jesus' other sermon about interpersonal behavior. He tells us, 
He gives us the answer to greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He tells us in Matthew 5, verse um, 19. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is he who keeps the least of these commandments and teaches others to do that also. That's Jesus' words. We're concerned with greatness and the big categories and we're in the main things. But Jesus says, the, the, the true great Christian, the humble, dependent and great Christian is the one who keeps in love the least of my commandments. Because if you love him, you'll do everything he says. So when he says here, don't cause one of these who believe in me to stumble or to trip up or to fall into a trap and have their leg maimed in a trap spiritually. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that the way to do that is to keep my commandments even the least of them. So I ask you in light of that, are you concerned about God's commandments and are you concerned about holiness? Well, that's what holiness is. It is um, a conformity to the word of God in the big things and in the small things. Are you concerned about being holy in all ways? Sure, our Lord does say that there are great commandments. He says that in Matthew's Gospel. The greatest commandment is to love God and the other is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he scolds the Pharisees because they did the little things but ignored the weightier matters of the law like love, justice and mercy. So there are weighty matters of the law. There are great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind and strength. You shall worship God. You shall love your neighbor. You shall believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and submit to his lordship. But then there's all these other, least, as we call them, commandments about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the words we speak to each other, our thought life. And on and on it goes. There, there's all kinds of commandments that the Lord has given us to show us what he's like and what the Christian life ought to be like. And I ask you, if you are a member of this kingdom, if you are a Peter, a James, or a John, or a Nathaniel, or a Mary, or a Martha, if you're in this family, and the head of the family says, you have to watch that you're not laying traps, and that you're not causing a sinful offense and fall in another believer, you, if you're concerned about that, will say, how do I make sure that doesn't happen? And the Lord says, make sure you know my commandments and you're living by them, even to the least of my commandments. Um, there's all kinds of ways that we have to be careful about this. Obviously, none of us think it's okay to murder each other. None of us think it's okay... Um, to come into worship and to stand up in the middle of the worship service and start shouting obscenities. We, none of us, hopefully, are going to do these things. But what about the more subtle things that God commands? 
Are we sure we're not laying snares for each other? Are we preparing for worship? Are we reverent in worship? Are we loving in our speech to one another? When we leave worship, do we speak to one another about the Lord? Do we seek edification to one another? Do we share scripture with each other? Because there are people here right now who are struggling, and they may not have told us that they're struggling. And they need to hear a word from the Lord, and they need built up by another Christian. And are you going to speak to them about God, or about the sermon, or about where they are spiritually? Because that's what they need. And to speak about something else, within reason, but to speak about something else, to tell them how work's going, or to speak about the football match or some movie you've seen or just something interesting that you happen to notice this week. You may just be laying a snare for that person. You may be withholding something good that they ought to receive from you because you are a representative of Christ and Christ expects you to help these people. You may be causing someone else to fall into discouragement, to fall into despondency and things like that. And... There are other things um, in our lives that we may think are least commandments. Um, I already mentioned our words, that's a big one. The Lord's Day is another one. Um, The command for the Lord's Day isn't a least commandment, but all of the questions surrounding it seem like least commandments. Should I stop at the gas station on the Lord's Day? Should I... These are all little applications to our grand commandment, and we don't always know the answer to all of these things. And there are other things, too. The way we speak about God. When we speak about God, are we serious? Is there depth to the way we refer to the Lord? Are we always joking about Jesus and joking about the Bible and joking about church? All of these things are present-day applications of what Jesus is saying here. Now, if he says the least commandments, and he says, do not cause anyone to stumble, then we have to be very concerned that nothing we are saying or doing will make someone stumble. If you come in very relaxed here, and you think this place is a joke, and you're just very relaxed, and you kind of wander in like, this isn't the worship of God, and you, you're just saying to everyone, don't worry about that. You don't need to, you don't need to take God too seriously. I mean, we're, we're children of God. God loves us. We can relax here. Then you have set a snare. You have set a snare. Are you sure that God tells you to be relaxed about anything His presence? Are you sure that the Bible says that? Read the Bible. And if the Bible tells you that there is awe and glory in the presence of God, then if you find yourself not conformed to that, do what Christ says. Cut it off. Stop doing it. And uh, stop laying a snare for others. I'm not speaking specifically to the situation. I, I would say this in any church. This is our situation today. And the other, you can fill in. You can go home and read through God's commandments. Get the Westminster Larger Catechism, the section on the Ten Commandments, and read each commandment. And just test whether your understanding of the depth and demands of these commandments is realistic or whether your ideas about these commandments fall far short of what Jesus is actually expecting of you 
that is true of children especially for children will imitate us children watch us and children follow examples and that's true if we're parents or if we're just around children do not cause one of these little ones to stumble if you're going to speak about doctrine in front of a child or you're going to make a comment on the Bible in front of a child or you're going to say anything about God in front of a child make sure that what you are saying is actually from God and not from your own imagination conception of what God and his word is like there are people here who want to worship God properly Seriously, if there are people um, who want to be careful about our speech and about gossip and things like that, if there are people who want to be careful about the Lord's day and honour God in that, if there are people that are very um, sensitive and serious about sexual purity and the way they dress and things like that, whatever commandment out of the ten it is, don't be the one who says in front of your children, speaking about another Christian, oh, that person's crazy. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the way you dress, or it doesn't matter what you do on a Sunday, or it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we spend our money on this, or if we're extravagant with our money. None of that matters. And you, you tell your child to not trust that person, that that person is wrong about Scripture, and you have a, a very blasé, relaxed, kind of unbiblical view of what God expects of us. We're never in front of our children representing God and ever telling them of his awe and the glory of his commandments and that we ought to fear him and that we ought to be careful and self-controlled as Christians if we never give our children a sense of the majesty of God and that is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God then we have set a trap for them for a superficial giddy, unbiblical view of the God of creation and history are you sure you know what God is like when you speak so much of what you think God thinks is important and what you think God thinks is not important are you sure have you studied it, have you read church history, have you seen what our forefathers thought have you gone to other men in history who had a depth of understanding of the word of God and who tell us what they think the Bible means about these things have you taken counsel from others or have you just brought your own image of God and you insist that it's the right image and you're then going to perpetuate it to other Christians or even uh, your family are you sure that you are portraying the right thing. Don't cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to trip or to fall over a stumbling block. That is true also of our general spiritual condition. And I'm just going to say something briefly about this because it, it's covered by our, our previous point. But our general spiritual condition. The reason that the apostles are in this discussion and place 
it's because of the way their hearts were at that time. And that's not even about objective commandments. It's about a pride, a self-reliance, a lack of prayer, a lack of spiritual mindedness, which then caused a hardness of heart that the Lord Jesus tells us several times was there. Several chapters before this, they have developed a hard heart and they're not receiving and being sensitive to all that Christ is saying. We have to watch as mature Christians what our general spiritual condition is and the effect it will have on others. If we are hard, if we are proud, if we lack devotion and piety, if we lack prayer in the presence of the Lord and communion with the Christ who died for us and bore wrath for us and pours out his grace upon us, if we're not fresh and fragrant from the presence of Christ and being with him, then hardness, pride, disputes, argumentativeness, gossip, and other things will rise up. And we'll be doing what these men are doing. Who's the greatest? And our mothers will be assigned to go to Christ and to try and win for us and to get things for us. This is the great warning for our hearts from the whole of scriptures, my dear friends. This is in us. I said in my prayer, there is spirit and flesh. There is new man and there is old man. We are two things as Christians. And the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. There is a war in our souls, and we never arrive at a place where we're set and safe. We need daily grace and washing and growth to remain on the new man side. If the new man is neglected, if prayer and grace and love and worship and receiving of the word of God, if it's neglected, the new man seizes up and loses his strength, and the old man wrestles him to the ground, for the old man has all he needs. The old man has all he needs. He has enough food in this earth to always be fed, and he will rise up in pride and all these things against the new man. And you will sin against others in your words and actions, and you will trip others up and will trip each other up. That's the awful thing about these things. That hardness. That hardness. You watch for that pride and that hardness. And watch for the complaining and the gossip and everything that comes from it. In the Old Testament, there is a great picture for us when the children of Israel are supposed to enter the promised land in the book of Numbers. And they, uh, they should have gone in. They should have been believing and they came back complaining about the promised land and in unbelief and not wanting to go in and they made others stumble and they convinced the whole church to want to stone Caleb and Joshua and Caleb and Joshua were in the spirit the new man in Caleb and Joshua was strong and they saw a spiritual sight of taking the promised land but the old man spoke words of stumbling and snares to the rest of the church And they wanted to kill Caleb and Joshua. And what happened when they went back into the wilderness? What happened? They were constantly, there were snares all over that camp of Israel. They were everywhere. There were people saying, we had leeks and we had melons and 
derelict in Egypt, and now we have this manna. We have nothing to drink. It was so good in Egypt. And everyone listened to them and said, so it was good in Egypt. And Moses has taken us to kill us. Jesus shows us here what happened. By their words, they laid a snare for the children of God. And it would have been better for them to be cast into the sea with a millstone. And then they all died. They died. Some of them were swallowed up in the ground. Some of them were bitten by serpents. Some of them were filled with the plague throughout that 40 years. And apart from Caleb and Joshua, they all died in the wilderness. And they didn't make it. Life and death, friends. Doctrine. Moral behavior. Great commandments. Least commandments. Love for one another. For our neighbor. And our general, our general condition of hardness or pride or unbelief that cause all these behaviors. What does Jesus tell us? Does he tell us, don't worry, it will all be covered by grace. Don't worry, there are no real consequences once you're in the church and once you're a Christian. No matter what you do or what you say, there will always be forgiveness and it will all work out in the end. We'll all be holy in heaven anyway. So let's just mess each other up on the way there. It's all fine, we're all going to heaven. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says there's cause and effect. There are consequences for the way we speak and the way we think and the way we act. We affect other people all the time. We have to take holiness seriously. The consequences are dire. He says here, it would be better if they were thrown into the sea with this huge millstone that a donkey pushed. That it would be tied, this huge millstone, that's the size of a few of these pews together. And it's tied to the neck by a rope. And he's taken on a ship and they're just thrown in to the Mediterranean Sea and they're never seen again. And Jesus, Jesus is, he's waking these men up and he's waking me up and you up. And he's saying, this is what happens if we lay snares for each other. You might lay too many a snare and then realize in a few years or at the end of your life that the amount of snares that you're setting and the carelessness with which you do it and the way you speak about God and his commandments may you may actually discover in the rising of those fruits in your life that your original profession of Christ was actually false. And you will be cast into the sea with a stone. I wish I could get across to you how serious it is. I know you want I know you want it to finish. But Judas is among them. I would have accepted Judas, they all did. Outwardly Judas was the same as the rest of them. You couldn't really detect it. And Judas hears this. And he laid a snare for himself and for others. And he's not the only one. He's just an example. I have, do you think I've never asked myself if I'm a Judas or not? Do you not think I look at my behavior sometimes? And the things I maybe say and do? And do you never think I come to a passage like this about laying a snare for another believer? Do you think I've never laid one? I have. 
And I have to be really careful that I don't have an attitude that I'm allowed to lay them because I'm a Christian and it will be forgiven. If I keep laying snares for other people, I might find out in ten years that a lot of what I believed about myself was wrong. Jesus' warning is for me and for you. We all must take heed to it. We must make sure that we are not doing this. And we are not making other people sin and making them fall flat on their face. Judas was among them. And he said, I'm okay. I'm I'm justified. It's all okay. I have a right to be angry with Christ. I have a right to get some of this money. And I am a true Israelite. And I believe in the church. I believe in Israel. I believe in God. And this man, who I placed my trust in, this Messiah, so-called, who I placed my trust in, everything he's doing and saying is destroying the kingdom. This man has lost his mind. And he's worth nothing. And he keeps silent about it. And he manipulates the other disciples. And he criticizes Mary and Martha. And he sits and he bides his time. And what does he do? When Jesus crosses the line, this man goes to the church court to the Sanhedrin. And he says to the Sanhedrin, I'll give this man to you. He is not one of us. And he gets the money for Christ. And it would have been better, Jesus said to Judas in the Last Supper, it would be better if you had not been born. It's an awful thing to say. And for every soul that will go to hell, it would have been better if they had not even been born. Jesus is the one that talks about the fire, not me. He connects little snares and offenses growing in our life and tripping up other Christians he connects it to the cutting off of the hand and the cut being cast into everlasting fire I don't have time to preach another sermon about the seriousness of sin and hell please think upon these things and may we all make sure that we are laying clean straight paths for each other to walk on and help holding each other's hands as we walk this path. And may we never in this congregation lay a snare for another believer because the cause and effect could be dire for each of us. May the Lord bless these thoughts upon his word. Let's stand for a moment and we'll pray together. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Christ's words are stark and they wake us up and this is your gospel that we are looking through consecutively and we, we see that the Lord has a very different attitude to our behavior than we often do and we ask that we would hear it and that we would love each other and love God and love the doctrines of the word and that we would grow up, as Christ says, and become uh, fully capable in his kingdom. And that we may look to those uh, who are least in the kingdom. Uh, we may look to those who are um, vulnerable. We may look to those who are still learning, as we all are. 
but those who uh, Satan would see as a great opportunity. And we pray that we would speak to one another in a righteous way, in a loving, God-honoring way, and that we would consider each other and value each other in light of who we all are in Christ. Help us all to be Christ-like and to become as little children and to be in this kingdom and to lay no stumbling blocks for one another. For we ask it in his great name and for his sake. Amen.